And now it's my pleasure to introduce one of your moderators, Dr. Miranda Spindel, ASPCA Senior Director of Shelter Medicine. Miranda? Good afternoon. I'd like to thank Valerie um, and also thank each of you for taking the time to join us this afternoon for the first in a series of webinars that will highlight the Association of Shelter Veterinarians' new guidelines for standards of care in shelter animals. Um, as Valerie said, I'm Dr. Miranda Spindel. I serve as the Senior Director of Shelter Medicine at the ASPCA. And together with me today is Dr. Martha Smith, Director of Veterinary Medical Services at the Animal Rescue League of Boston. And we're going to be moderating your session and doing our best to answer your questions. Um, and as Valerie mentioned, anything that we are not um, able to address in our time together, we will uh, archive and send out answers to following the session. So it's my pleasure today to be able to introduce to you Dr. Gary Petronic. He is our presenter today on why standards of care matter to shelter animals. Dr. Petronic completed his BMD in 1984 and shortly thereafter began his career as a shelter director. He later went on to complete a fellowship in epidemiology at the Center for Human-Animal Bond at Purdue where he did some of the first studies on pet population dynamics and shelter relinquishment. Following Purdue, he was the director of the Center for Animals and Public Policy, where he supervised the graduate program in animals and public policy and taught courses in quantitative methods and human-animal relations. While at Tufts, he founded the Hoarding of Animals Research Consortium, HARC, an interdisciplinary research group that completed some of the first studies of animal hoarding and helped define that problem. He is now Vice President for Animal Welfare at the Animal Rescue League of Boston. Over the past two and a half years, he has been part of the 14-member task force of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, working on the guidelines for standards of care in animal shelters. With no further ado, I'm going to turn this presentation over to Dr. Petronic. Hello, thank you, Valerie, and hello, everyone. This is my first webinar, so uh, I, I hope this all goes well. We're, we're all, on behalf of the association and the A and certainly all of our moderators today, we're very pleased that we have such great attendance. Um, what we're going to try to do today is give you the background um, on this project and explain why we did it and, and what we hoped, what the needs were um, that drove us to decide this was the time, what we hope to accomplish with it. Um, as um, Miranda mentioned a little bit earlier, the actual details of the standards are going to be covered in a whole series of webinars that will be going out over the next few months, so we do hope you'll be able to join us for those as well. Um, this was the task force. You can see the names that are listed there, and it represents a very broad spectrum of, of veterinarians working in shelter medicine. Um, you can see their current positions, but most of these people have decades of experience working in shelters and as veterinarians, um, and they really do cover the gamut of, of you know, big um, municipal shelters, university programs, private nonprofit organizations, et cetera. Um, many of them are also involved in consulting work, and they visit and help shelters all around the country. So it really was a broad, uh, broad depth of expertise in the world of animal shelters as well as shelter medicine. The timeline um, for this project was really first discussed in 2001 when the Association of Shelter Veterinarians was formed. 
And for me, that was a really special time, as it was for many of us, because when I joined um, shelter medicine shortly out of veterinary school, veterinarians really were not involved in shelters at all, and there wasn't a shelter vet association. So in 2001, the association was formed, and today it is now a thriving organization of over 750 people. In 2000, so the idea of having a standards document was actually raised in the very early years, but for a variety of reasons, it wasn't the time for it. But in 2007, we renewed that conversation. And at that point, the ASV board authorized initiation of a literature review because we wanted to be, this to be a very science-based program as well as based on our own professional experience. And we completed that in um, January of 2009 and handed all those papers out. And there were literally hundreds of papers that were, that were copied and reviewed and handed out to all of the potential authors. At that point, the board established a task force, um, appointed section leaders for each of the sections of the document, and then four of us were editors to coordinate that effort. We spent a lot of time outlining the content um, in 2009, writing the first drafts. In the summer of 2009, we compiled all of those materials in sort of a unified whole by the fall and spent literally most of 2010 then very carefully revising it and working through it almost word by word. Collectively, this is a many thousand person hours for all of these tasks, and we're really pleased to be able to publish it in December of 2010. And I really want to emphasize to all of you out there who are working in shelters that this is version 1.0. And we fully recognize this, is the, this was the initial version, and it is going to be a living document. It is something that we hope all the feedback we get from users as well as experience ourselves, it will continue to be revised to continue to be relevant to the needs of shelters and shelter animals. So here are some of the goals. And it really is a document that, even though there were, as I'll mention, was sort of stimulated by some needs that were not so positive, the goal of the project is really to, a very positive one. It's to provide shelters and communities a tool for self-assessment and improvement, to increase consistency of care of animals, to promote the absolute highest standards of welfare, both for existing facilities as well as for shelters that are building new buildings. Um, we're hoping that this will fill a gap for sound reference material for regulatory purposes when communities or states look for guidance, um, and to provide a benchmark for when corrective action might be needed. And again, as I mentioned, to be a living document. So we're going to talk about, in today's presentation, the scope of the project, a brief history of animal sheltering and protection, since I know that amongst the attendees there are probably many people who are very new to the sheltering field to talk about our guiding principles, the five freedoms and where they came from, a little bit about why now for the standards, to anchor it into precedent from other groups to show that it is really, even though it's a new idea, it's hardly a novel one or a radical one, um, talk a little bit about how we need to promote quality of life and, and where cruelty statutes really fall short in shelters and review the topics again that we're going to be covering through the rest of the webinars. So now we're going to be having some uh, a quick poll. Uh, we'd like to get a sense from the attendees of your level of familiarity with the guidelines. In the right-hand side of your screen, I guess you'll see a place where you can click um, you know, the various choices, whether you've read them cover to cover, just having skimmed them, waiting to be read, it, read uh, waiting to be read, or not really knowing much about them. 
So if you can do that, then your responses will be summarized for the whole group to look at. So if you could do that right now, that'd be great. Thanks, Gary. I'm waiting to see if more folks will finish. We're at 84%. If a couple more folks could complete the quick poll, that'd be great. Just pick your answer and um, hit the submit button. shutting down for me right now, and I'm going to share the results of everyone. And um, by the way, the annotation tools that some folks are playing with, those are really just for, for Gary's use today, so if you could refrain, that would be wonderful. All right, so it looks like 36% um, the largest majority have skimmed them, fully a fifth have read them cover to cover, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, and then there's a handful that are less familiar. So most of our attendees, half of them at least, have some familiarity with the standards, which is, I think, amazing, and that's great. Um, and then we'd just like to get a little sense of who the audience is for everyone. So again, you can see the choices. They're self-evident, self obviously. If you could just do those quickly, we'll, this will be our last poll, and then we'll continue on with the webinar. Gary, this is Miranda, and we did have a comment from a participant that there are some organizations who have logged in as a group who are not able to participate in a single poll. So, just so we have that information. Good. Great, thanks, Miranda. Mm -hmm. Okay, the poll is going to close on its own in. Again, as a diversity of participants, uh, roughly a third are shelter directors, 16% uh, are shelter medical staff, 15% um, are shelter, shelter employees, non-medical staff, 12% volunteers or board members, and 10% who are not affiliated with a shelter. All right, so moving on, um, scope and intentions. Um, one of the things we wanted to do with this project, and this is something that evolved as we worked on it, it was clear that we needed this document to be very, very broad. And so in that context, we used the term shelter very, very broadly to reflect the wide range of organizations and even individuals who are caring for populations of homeless companion animals. It's not just for people who might think of themselves as a traditional shelter with long rows of kennels 
kennel runs for dogs or cat cages. Our intention was really to develop a document that will be relevant regardless of philosophy or mission or size of an organization. We really wanted to bring the focus of this document back to the animals and their needs, which are really constant regardless of where they're being kept. I mean, as most of you probably know, a shelter today is vastly different from the list of choices that might have been available in, 19, in the 1980s when I first entered shelter medicine. You know, certainly there are municipal animal control organizations and private humane societies, but a huge number of animals are being cared for in what were then fairly non-traditional settings. Um, rescue groups, foster homes, there's transport groups that are involved, sanctuaries and hospices. So when we say shelter, we really try to be all-encompassing. Now, in order to develop this document that was relevant to a broad range of entities, um, we wanted to focus it on the animals. And so we modeled it along the lines of a document that was produced actually back in the 1960s in the United Kingdom by the Bramble Commission to sort of sketch out some basic principles that were then thought to be necessary for good welfare for farm animals. Well, those are clearly the five, free, the five freedoms, and those are clearly principles that are relevant to any animal anywhere, and, and you can read them. The freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, from pain, injury, and disease, from uh, freedom to express normal behavior, and freedom from fear and distress. These are things that we've you know, heard talked about for farm animals and even zoo animals and laboratory animals for a long time. Um, in the literature, but it's really more recently that we've started to apply them and recognize that they're equally important for companion animals in shelter-type settings. Again, just a touch of sort of where we came from because to understand where we are today and, and why we're doing this, and it's important to understand where we started and how we got here. And animal protection and sheltering really began in the mid to the late 80s. Um, the gentleman up on the left is Henry Berg, who founded the ASPCA, which is America's first big shelter. He was the son of a wealthy family who witnessed appalling cruelty to horses, which were the backbone of transportation of people and goods and cities throughout the U.S. and Europe. And it was a desire to prevent these abuses that led him to found the A. And when he founded that organization in 1866, its primary mission was the prevention of cruelty to animals. It was not sheltering stray and unwanted pets. Indeed, in those early days when the statutes that are the foundation of many of our current anti-cruelty laws were written, animal protection was very closely allied with the prevention of cruelty to children. And the story of Berg's intervention on behalf of an orphan, Mary Ellen Wilson, being abused in a foster home is well known. But the point is the prevention, the focus of, of these organizations was on the prevention of suffering more than sheltering animals. And indeed, in those early years in New York, Berg actually resisted um, and opposed um, the ASPCA taking on the role of dog control for the city of New York. And you can see in this old lithograph, there's a picture of strays being drowned at the New York Pound in 1877. It was really not until after his death in 1894 that the ASPCA took on the responsibility for municipal animal control. And it was until 100 years later that the organization then went back to the roots and separated its mission from animal control in the city, electing not to renew their contract. And that was a trend that, again, has been since repeated by many humane organizations. The 70s and the 80s were when sheltering really grew in the US. Um, 
Um, many other humane societies eventually did follow the lead of the aid to absorb responsibilities for animal control. And as a result, animal control and efforts to prevent cruelty often became merged, if not muddled. Dealing with an overwhelming number of unwanted pets led to the term pet overpopulation, and increasingly, the euthanasia of surplus animals became the focus of many organizations, private and municipal. And no one was really prepared for this task, and many inhumane methods of euthanasia were employed. Shelters and the people who worked in them were often stigmatized. So I, I think of the first wave of change in modern sheltering arising in response to the need to euthanize so many unwanted pets in a more humane manner and to provide respect and credibility to the individuals who struggled with little support to do the best they could with the resources available. And I don't know how many of the attendees here had the privilege to know her, but leaders such as Phyllis Wright, who worked for the HSUS for many years, were instrumental in implementing training, starting professional organizations for shelters um, and the people who worked in them to greatly raise the standard of care and to start to begin to increase sensibilities about attending to the needs of animals. Her mantra of less is more, LES, legislation, education, and sterilization guided shelters for decades and to a large extent is still quite relevant today. Phyllis and her contemporaries could probably never have envisioned how far sheltering would come and the success it would be achieved in reducing euthanasia rates in what is a fairly short period of time. Increasing responsible pet ownership and making spay neuter a mantra for veterinarians as well as for shelters. This is also when um, another big change that's occurred here is the involvement of veterinarians with shelters, which has changed dramatically um, as the decline in euthanasia numbers has occurred. And it's really opened the door to a new era of sheltering and how to best care for animals. So why now? Well, as I mentioned, the idea has been around for a while, certainly since the ASV um, was founded in, in 2001. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary. Um, there's also been a huge growth in the scientific knowledge base in the past 10 years, and we really felt that the field of shelter medicine was mature enough to consider self-regulation. It's also true that many shelters are always looking for ways to get even better, and they're looking for guidance. There are also changes in expectation by society in terms of what animals need and deserve, and there have been some recent negative events. Indeed, it's really concern about the detrimental effects of intensive confinement of animals in agriculture that's prompted numerous initiatives to phase out the most intensive systems in the U.S. that have really been very detrimental to farm animal welfare. And it should be noted that the U.S. lags behind other countries in the EU with respect to these issues. And so the question that we asked is if society is rallying behind better treatment for the animals we eat, what are their expectations for the animals they treasure most as family members? And as a note, um, I'll just draw your attention to this because I think it's really worth looking at. This just passed up very recently this month is Virginia has proposed some very interesting minimum standards of care for agricultural animals, and there are some very um, good definitions in there, I think. Also in 2010, and actually before our standards document was released, the governor of Delaware signed in a, a landmark law in that state um, again, regulating shelters and really putting forward some very animal-centered ideas in the regulations for improving care and for involving veterinarians. 
So one of the changes in society um, that's driving this is the increasing acknowledgement that confinement causes stress, which can result in distress and suffering. And it goes without saying, I mean, I think anyone here who's ever been to a zoo or a farm or a, a laboratory, you know, knows the stress that animals can suffer when they're confined for long periods of time with, in small spaces with lack of stimulation. And it's only really more recently that we began to recognize that confinement in shelter settings may be equally deleterious. We really know more than we ever did about the needs and wants of our companion animals, and we do have an obligation to put that knowledge into practice. And the little guy on the right um, is Lenny, and he was a mascot cat in the very first shelter I ever worked in, and he is in a, a small, probably 18-inch by 18-inch cage, and in, in the day, that was considered an ideal environment for cats. I think we've come a long way now and recognize that that is probably a pretty suboptimal environment for cats. So I want to just touch on, without dwelling on this too excessively, some precipitating events that have really highlighted the need for these standards. So besides the desire to do better, there's been an unfortunate need to, um, um, to provide some guidance to, in situations where animals were harmed in situations or by people claiming to want to help them. And we really can't undo the harm that has occurred in those situations. We really can't honor the lives that were lost and learn from these tragedies and do everything we can to ensure that they're not repeated. So one of, the, one of the first examples was the lead animal shelter in Las Vegas. It was run by the Animal Foundation, and it began as a rescue organization determined to reduce euthanasia through high-volume spay-neuter efforts. In 1995, they shifted their focus somewhat, and they were awarded the Las Vegas City Animal Control Contract and became a large open admission shelter. Problems with overcrowding and disease at that point even did not stop them from obtaining additional animal control contracts. And then they became one of the largest open admission shelters in the nation and understood themselves to be a model of, of animal sheltering. Unfortunately, that isn't really um, what happened. The resulting mismatch of unrestricted intake with limited shelter capacity for care coupled with failure to adhere to basic standards of population medicine really resulted in untold animal suffering and paradoxically without changing the final death rate very much. Only the manner of death was reported. It was changed, rather. Um, and what this article is is an article that was published in the New York Times. And as you can see by the title, a thousand dogs and cats killed after a disease outbreak in the shelter got a lot of people's attention that things were not right. So these were the statistics that were put out, and as you can see, about 41% of the animals were adopted, but what was telling is the other animals, because they were trying to not euthanize animals for space, simply died for medical reasons. So there was 8% that died in their cages, there were another 30% that were considered medical euthanasias, and another 21% that died, or were euthanized rather, in extremis, meaning at the moment where they would have probably died naturally. Here's typical in-shelter mortality for the entire state of Virginia. As you can see, that number is very, very different. It's only a couple of percent. And this is true for well-run shelters really across the country. You don't see 30, 40, 50 percent of animals dying of um, medical conditions and preventable diseases. 
The lead shelter then did call in, to their credit, um, a team from the HSUS, and they published this report of their assessment um, on their website for several months, um, which, again, I think is to their credit. And this is, gives you a sense of what, what the HSUS found there. Serious deficits in animal health and veterinary care, dozens of animals dead or dying from a variety of serious illnesses, hundreds of animals in every area of the shelter were sick, dogs starving due to lack of access to food and overcrowded runs, attacks upon kennel mates frequent. Aisleways open to the public were slick with diarrhea, vomit, and blood from sick and dying animals. Carcasses were left in cages during open hours as overwhelmed staff scrambled to up with the removal of the bodies. Although many individual staff members expressed concern and caring, there was a nearly complete absence of training and a lack of needed supplies, which would have made humane care challenging even under less crowded conditions. So there clearly were problems. And I guess going back, I should, I, should, uh, I should mention that since that time and after posting this report, there have been dramatic changes there, and the organization really has gone through an entire turnaround. One of the other things, unfortunately, that was said in the report is they were reporting their statistics. And in their statistics, they claim that only one dog and zero cats were identified as euthanized for space in 2006. But in that same time period, over 18,000 dogs and cats died or were euthanized for medical reasons. In this way, they could truthfully claim that no healthy, adoptable, or treatable animals were euthanized. However, in the HSU-US report, what was stated was that that claim was possible only because animals were rendered so sick and unhealthy by exposure to the shelter environment that they were actually beyond treatment. So when this kind of thing started to happen, it started to get the attention of shelter veterinarians because veterinarians were clearly involved in, in some of this. And a natural question was, what can we do? How can we prevent it? Um, what is needed? And that's when the idea that some standards that would lay out in, in, with great clarity what was appropriate and what was not appropriate in a shelter setting, as well as the tools and skills that were needed to provide optimal care were very timely. So I'll go through a few other ones. Again, you can Google these on, on the internet and read about them yourself. There was the Edna Sanctuary, which was a post-Katrina disaster. Um, again, this was hundreds of dogs that were delivered to this alleged sanctuary. And through, I guess, an overhead flyover, someone noticed that this looked like a, just a disaster area. And as you can see from the pictures, it clearly was. Um, eventually, the the proprietor of this sanctuary is found guilty of numerous counts of cruelty to animals and convicted. Tiger Ranch, um, again, a huge case out in the Pittsburgh area. Linda Bruno was charged with 593 counts of cruelty to animals. Authorities found more than 600 cats on her 29-acre um, property, including 200 dead ones. So the 406 found alive. Many had to be euthanized or died while being transported to a makeshift shelter. The image that she presented to the community of the sanctuary was one of love and success. She described it as the land of milk and tuna, where hundreds of cats were taken in and adopted out each month. But what was found out during the course of the prosecution of the trial was that only 21 cats were adopted out of thousands taken in and mass graves dotted the 29-acre property. All Creatures Great and Small was a sanctuary in um, South Carolina, I believe. North Carolina, I'm sorry. Um, and this was something that 
both PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and the Animal Legal Defense Fund work with the state of North Carolina for several years before they are able to close it down. And again, you can read about the terrible conditions there on the ALDF website should you choose to. Tenth Life was a sanctuary in Florida, again, one of the largest cat rescues in history down there that was assisted by the Maddie's Shelter Medicine Program down at the University of Florida, and that's fairly recent, 2009. Time and Sage Ranch was also 2009, more than 270 animals involved there. HSUS and other organizations were involved in a massive rescue for Time and Sage. Clean Slate, same thing, more than 300 animals rescued there where the bodies of dead animals were found with live ones and feces and urine contaminated the rooms. Again, charges for animal cruelty. Um, they're actually pled guilty to 300 counts of animal cruelty. Um, it's, we've seen this in, in municipal shelters. There was a raid in Memphis again last year on the Memphis City Shelter and all kinds of problems. Toronto Humane Society was the subject of a lot of bad press, including a major um, Globe and Mail investigation. And I think um, one of the things there to, that I want to show you is on this next slide, which is one of the myths that were, um, sorry, two slides coming, so let me, let me get to that slide. Um, this quote I thought was quite telling, um, where someone associated with the shelter said, if you have to put cage on top of cage, as long as the animal's living, isn't that the whole thing? You can't let interior decorating get in the way. And so that, again, suggested that there were some major differences in opinion about what animals need and what shelters should be obligated to provide. Is quality of life interior decorating? So how can standards help? Our goal, then, is to establish what is required for a decent quality of life for populations of companion animals, to dispel notions that high morbidity and mortality from disease and injury is the norm in shelters, it shouldn't be, and connect expectations of sanitation, medical care, and medical behavioral being to acceptable sheltering, and dispel any notion that these essentials are frivolous extras or cosmetic. They're important for the welfare of animals. So is there precedence? You know, this is one of the things that people asked as we were developing the standards. Well, are we breaking ground that's too radical? Is this something that's just too ahead of the globe to attempt? And the answer is, once we started to look in there, not only was the answer yes, but shelters are actually woefully behind many other industries. Animal hospitals have accreditations and standards. Zoos and aquariums have accreditations and standards. Laboratory animals have extensive accreditations and standards and review. Wildlife rehabilitators have minimum standards. Canada has produced national codes of practice for Canadian kennel operations. New Zealand has done that for dogs, minimum standards of welfare. Purebred dog feeders, breeders have listed a lot of things for purebred dog breeders in terms of housing and health conditions. Cat breeders, the same thing for the Cat Fanciers Association. Canada has um, national, a national code of practice for cattery operations, just as they do for cows. New Zealand also has something for cats. 
Um, there is a global federation of sanctuaries that's doing wonderful work to try to standardize care and to help and support sanctuaries. And also another companion organization, the American Sanctuary Organization, talking about criteria and standards. So this conversation is really not new to shelters. Um, it shouldn't be. It's new to shelters, but it certainly isn't new to the animal community. There's uh, AAEP, American Association of Equine Practitioners, um, standards for equine rescue and retirement facilities. And there's a group which I don't know too much about called the Animal Rescue Association, which has a rescue code of ethics. So I think after doing this, um, we concluded, after reviewing all this, we concluded that, yes, um, there, there was ample precedence for standards governing all kinds of animal care, and sheltering was woefully deficient in having something to guide it. So we believe that this broad accept that having all of these standards out there was evidence of broad acceptance of the merit of standards, and it did represent a wave of the future. And uh, it showed considerable. Once we reviewed all of these standards and looked at what others were doing, there was considerable consistency across species, settings, and countries. Um, while most of these did not directly apply to the care of unwanted, stray, or abused companion animals or to the individuals um, providing their care, the content there was certainly relevant. And it did, as I say, demonstrate the current gap in guidance for shelters. Others have said, well, fine, you have these standards. What good are they? I mean, they clearly are voluntary. There's nothing at this point. Certainly the ASV does not have the authority, nor do we want it, to, you know, to become regulators. Um, but there's plenty of evidence out there that if a scientifically, medically grounded document is produced, it can have widespread acceptance and can, in fact, become standard practice. Um, most of you working in shelters are probably dealing with rabies issues a lot and bite issues. Well, all of that is essentially guided by a document called the Compendium of Animal Rabies Control produced by the National Association of State Public Health Veterinarians every year. It, it's truly the Bible of how we manage bites and, and rabies control across the country. And there's been news reports about how the lack of oversight of shelters is being increasingly recognized. And here's one from Toronto that in response to that raid where people were saying they needed to have some sort of national governing body. Um, I think we're seeing evidence of more and more of this happening. And so again, one of our goals was if there is going to be regulation and people, for whatever reason, either in response to problems or in, in a desire to do better, are going to start developing regulations, it made sense to have them be medically and scientifically based, and we wanted to provide the resources in this document for them to be able to do that. Um, Problems can also shape external regulation, and that's how in several other situations um, high-profile problems, and we would argue that many of these shelter problems that we're seeing in the media where they're being prosecuted for cruelty are high-profile, can shape external regulation. Um, Life magazine back in the probably 60s um, published an article about great class B dealers and how they were stealing family pets for sale to research. And that horrible scandal and the terrible pictures that were published were instrumental in helping enact the Animal Welfare Act to help regulate the, the first step in regulating laboratory animal care in the United States. And that's something that's been amended many times since. Similarly, scandals um, 
documented very um, well by Deborah Blum in her book, The Monkey Wars, involving the treatment of primates in laboratory settings, were very responsible for um, animal lab animal regulation to the next step beyond uh, the existing Animal Welfare Act. So we wanted to sort of get ahead of that curve and have something out there would be, that would be available. Now, others have said, well, we have cruelty statutes. Isn't that enough? And the answer to that, we think, is a resounding no um, for a number of reasons. First off, many cruelty statutes are really grounded in very antiquated language. If you remember Henry Berg and looking at those workhorses in New York being abused, these, this language derives from those days. And so there's a lot of language that is both antiquated, whoever overdrives, overloads, drives and overloaded, um, and it's not terribly relevant for guaranteeing a high quality of life for companion animals living in shelters or shelter type situations. So cruelty statutes are not enough. Um, here's another way to look at it, and this again is, is a diagram that we adapted from the Farm Animal Welfare Council, um, and they're starting to look at these um, let's see if I can make this work. Um, these here on the left, and thinking about farm animals as having a high quality of life, a good quality of life, a poor quality of life, um, or a life not worth living. Um, and then on the top here, again, are the five freedoms. Well, you can see there's a number of situations possible. If a high quality of, in order to have a high quality of life, all of the five freedoms probably need to be present most or all of the time. You start getting into a borderline quality of life when you're, yes, addressing things like freedom from hunger and thirst and sometimes freedom from pain, injury, and disease, but then you start sliding and animals aren't free from fear and distress most of the time. They're not comfortable. They don't have the ability to express normal behavior and socialization. Unfortunately, what we see happening, this goes back to my point about cruelty laws, we're only prosecuting a very, very narrow piece of these. So there really is this gap. We want animals to be living up here where they have a high quality of life or good quality of life. We'd like to find a way to intervene here at the borderline stage before things really deteriorate when animals are at risk. But cruelty statutes don't really give us the tool to do that, at least the way they're currently worded and or interpreted by the courts. Typically, we can't act very effectively at least until we're looking at situations here where animals are not given proper food or water and they have untreated disease or injuries. It's very, very difficult to action in these situations when animals may suffer from fear and distress, from discomfort and lack of um, ability to express normal behavior and socialization. Those things would be very difficult to prosecute without these situations being present as well. So how can we translate this um, language of the five freedoms to a common language for shelters? Think about the value of articulating these principles into something that shelters can understand and implement. The picture on the left is from a recent past few years article describing a renovated sanctuary with over 700 animals. The organization in the newspaper article described as glowing with pride Yet almost everything in this picture is a lesson in probably what not to do compared to the setting on the right. At least from a shelter medicine perspective as well as from meeting the behavioral and mental needs of cats. What is shown here is not just cosmetic differences. 
Despite vastly different resources between the organizations pictured here, the shelter on the left could have found ways to put the five freedoms into practice, and it's our hope that this standards document will help provide that kind of guidance. We are actually starting to see the five freedoms slip now into more common usage um, in the CVMA code of practice for categories. They've actually listed the five freedoms, so it's something that others are embracing as well. The Farm Animal Welfare Council has also begun to build on this and to address the minimal acceptable treatment level as the most important ethical issue relating to farm animal welfare. And that means dealing with animals that are in this kind of situation right here, where things are starting to show problems, the warning signs are there, but trying to prevent us from getting to a situation where we're down there. So they, they talk about something called Banner's Principles, which is that harms of a certain degree and kind ought under no circumstance to be inflicted on an animal. And we've actually embraced those in our document by having probably about two dozen things that we, we deem unacceptable practices for shelters. And those are things we believe should be discontinued by any shelter because they're, no, they're just not a humane practice. And those are listed in the document and we'll be talking about those um, through the course of the webinars. Um, one example of those, for example, would be a cardiac stick in a conscious animal. Another would be hosing down a cage or kennel with an animal inside. Another would be the use of carbon monoxide for euthanasia. The other thing that's really important to, to know and be aware of when you're reading the standards document, and it was something that evolved over time as we're working with it, is that it's not designed to be an operational manual. It, it couldn't possibly do, you couldn't possibly write something we didn't think, that would be relevant to a wide range of entities if you're going to get very, very operational. We wanted something to be relevant to all kinds of entities that are caring for companion animals based on the basic principle that animals' needs remain the same regardless of the mission. We wanted to specify the goals of the five freedoms with the understanding that there may be many ways to meet them depending on resources. And those are things that will be discussed in various other modules as, as we go along. It, there's not just one way to do it. We wanted to emphasize something called a performance rather than engineering approach, recognizing that some areas were so important or had received such little attention that some detail would be necessary, but overall trying to avoid getting too far into the weeds. We wanted to articulate general principles rather than how to, and also realizing that more detail may be helpful in the future. And finally, we also wanted to be mindful of the length in the audience document has already turned into about a 18,000 to 20,000 word document and there just wasn't room to make it any longer. So this is the overview of the content. Um, there are, I think, 12 sections. There are operational issues, sections on facility design, on population management, on sanitation and cleaning, on medical health and physical well-being, on behavioral health and mental well-being, which is really the part that addresses those final two five freedoms talking about group housing, talking about animal handling, talking about euthanasia, talking about spay-neuter, animal transport, and public health components of sheltering. So again, to sort of wrap up, um, the goals of the project are, are positive. They're to provide shelters and communities a tool for self-assessment and improvement, to increase consistency of care, 
across the U.S. to promote the highest standards of welfare, to provide sound reference material, to provide a benchmark when corrective action is needed, and to create a living document that will be responsive to developments in shelter medicine and animal care. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of what's possible. Um, at the Animal Rescue League, for example, we've been in the fortunate position of sort of being at ground zero, knowing what was coming down the pike, and so we've been tinkering with some fairly significant um, changes in our own operation to try to see how we, living in, a, in an older urban facility, was built in the 1950s, which by no means physically is, is anything near a model shelter, could be how we could adapt our operational procedures and to some extent our physical plant in order to achieve some of the goals in the document. So one of the things we did, and, and you'll learn, be learning a lot more about this from Dr. Newberry when she talks about population management, was to implement a, a more organized and more scientific feline population management plan again, incorporating a lot of the things in the document, with the goal of reducing length of stay for adopted cats and kittens um, by, again, incorporating a lot of these ideas. And the idea behind that is if we shorten length of stay, animals would be less stressed, animals would be adopted faster, hopefully we would be able to keep them healthier, hopefully they would, it would also allow us to improve our adoption rate and increase our intake. And lo and behold, it was actually possible. If you look at the graph here, the, our, our median length of stay in um, 2009, let's say, is in red. And you can see how it clearly cycled over the year. And we began this in January, and that's 2009. And in 2010, in almost every single month, the median length of stay was significantly decreased. So when we first started, it went from around 30 days to around 20-some days for adopted cats. And these are for adult cats that are the hardest, you know, hardest for us to move. And as we are here now in December, you're looking at roughly 25 days compared to about 35 days last year. And this represented over the course of the year about a savings in 10,000 cat care days. Same thing for kittens, you know, reduced all across the board. That allowed us to, again, have a lower daily capacity. It allowed us to increase, actually, our adoptions. We actually, in the face of all of that, um, increased our euthanasia, or increased our intake rate and improved our live release rate. So every single metric and indicator was positive. The staff had more time to take place, to interact with the animals, and we were able to, and I don't have a picture of ours, but you'll see this is um, from Kate Hurley, I think. We were actually able to completely um, renovate one of our cat wards so that we drilled holes between our adjacent cages. So now cats have more space, meeting those standards. They're able to have litter and food be in, in separate areas and sleeping be in separate areas. It makes them easier to clean if they're shy cats. And again, all of this was really possible because we were able to decrease our average daily capacity. So we've, even though we have a very old facility and there are many things about it that are clearly not optimal, we were able to achieve many of the standards goals by implementing some of these principles and having them work together. Um, here was something else that was just recently sent to me, and I'm not going to I'm not going to show too many more because you'll see more examples, hopefully, as the standard presentations go on. And this was a shelter in Florida that has incorporated something called Doggy Wellness Hour. And what they do is they close their kennels 
from 2 to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday, and that's the time for all the dogs to get some extra attention from um, volunteers and staff and, again, provide some of that extra socialization and, and, and mental wellness that's so important for animal well-being. So I think a lot of creativity is going to spring out of this, and hopefully there will be a lot of sharing of information and ideas. But the goal of this is, to again, to be something that any shelter can benefit from, regardless of your size, your population, or your resources. So that's the end of my part of this. I guess we have a poll coming up. And again, so Brett, you to just reply based on what you know so far, what you're thinking of doing in the future. Don't intend to use the document. Intend to attend the next webinar session and learn more before deciding. You're already using it. Um, intending to use it in the future and not really being sure where you're going to go. Ten seconds to complete the poll, please. There you go, Gary. Okay, so we've got a lot of no answers yet. <laughs> Um, and it's kind of a mix. Um, so let's see. Wonderful to see that nobody said they don't intend to use the document. We've got already 20% um, saying that they intend to attend the next webinar and learning more before deciding how to proceed. 18% um, already using the guidelines. Um, B, um, another 25% intending to use it in the future and only a small number, not sure yet. Martha, I haven't been keeping track of the screen. I can't see the chat part, so I don't know if you guys have been answering questions as we've gone along. We've had um, one question came in that we might pose to the audience as well as to you, um, Gary, that came from an audience member as to whether anyone knows of a poster that would be suitable for staff or for putting in a public area of the shelter displaying the five freedoms. Um, I don't know if I know one, but it sure wouldn't be hard to develop something if there was interest in it. Maybe if there are others that know of um, something like that, they can post that in the chat as we continue with questions and answers. I mean, that's something we'd be glad to consider through our Center for Shelter Dogs. It wouldn't be hard to put something like that together at all if we could just get a little bit better sense of um, feedback from the group about exactly what it is they'd like it to say and how they might see it being used. But it's a nice idea, and I guess it's something we'd love to make available in some way, shape, or form. We have a question from Karen Walsh. Um, she says, our shelter is new but was designed so that we have dogs recovering from surgery about 20 feet from the cat. <clears throat> Once the dogs are awake, they are taken out of the clinic. Do you think that exposure to dogs for the healthy cats is too stressful? Uh, Did you address that or Miranda from the surgery perspective? Yeah. 
Karen, that may be something that we talk about in some of the upcoming webinars in a little bit more detail. So I may um, I may put you on hold with that and leave that unless either Martha or Gary wants to get into that question in more detail now. Well, I guess I'd say the very short answer is in the document we talk about the importance of trying to maximize separation between dogs and cats or predator and safe species because those are sources of stress. But it, it, we don't get really prescriptive about how to do that. I think a lot would depend on your individual situation and how you're set up. And um, I think for, that would be a great question for you know much more elaboration when you get into the spay-neuter section. People who are doing that and have contributed to that section in a lot of depth with a lot of experience can weigh in on that. Let me make one other uh, comment to the group too, because one of the things we all recognize amongst the 14 authors as we're doing this is probably none of our shelters, as we currently are, begin to meet all of these standards. So it wasn't like we did something that was, you know, something we were already able to do. We knew that we would have to struggle to achieve some of these goals, but we also didn't write anything that we didn't think was achievable and possible in some way, shape, or form. And there are also things in the document that we call musts, which we feel are really essential, and other things we recommend as shoulds, which are ideal practices. There are things that we think are, are going to improve animal care and welfare and decrease stress, et cetera, but recognize that they may not be achievable or possible or perhaps necessary in every different situation, depending on how you know things are going there. So that, again, if you look at the document itself, you will see that there's some explanatory language explaining all of that a little bit more precisely perhaps in terms of how to use the document. So we've had a few participants um, give suggestions for where we might be able to find some other um, Five Freedom posters and we'll we'll take a look and potentially be able to post something like that on the ASPCAPro.org site for um, those who are interested um, or a link to something that may be useful for you. It looks like there are just a, a few questions um, trickling in, and um, as Valerie mentioned, we will be putting together um, some follow-up information for attendees that you'll also be able to access on that, um, that link. So I'd like to just take a minute to thank everybody for participating and joining us today, and particularly um, say thank you to our presenter and to Valerie and to Dr. Martha Smith for their assistance. So um, please stay tuned for information on the, the upcoming webinars. We hope that you'll join us for our next session um, that will be held at the end of February on the next um, section of the uh, guidelines document. And I think that brings our session today to a close. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And again, please visit the website that you'll that was on your screen. Um, I'll pull it back up, and I'll be emailing you um, to answer some questions. Yes, um, there will be a link to the recording. Yes, you'll have access to the slides. Um, yes, there's a download to the standards themselves on the website also. This link, and we will be adding materials uh, next week, and you also can find the link to the registration for the next webinar. And um, all future webinars will be added there as we get confirmation on them.
if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. This is Valerie Shepard um, at any time. Thank you again to Gary, Miranda, Martha, and everyone for, for making time today for this presentation. Welcome.